from the Gospel of Mark. And he was transfigured before them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Today is Valentine's Day, but it's also the last Sunday of the Epiphany. And when we were doing our staff devotionals earlier this week, Father Chris caught me off guard when he asked me a question. He asked, and he asked it for the sake of all of us, what does epiphany mean? What's a good question? And I had a really embarrassing sort of flat-footed response. You know, I was kind of scrambling. So I said, you know, it's kind of like uh, that light bulb that goes off in cartoons, you know, when somebody has an idea or a realization, when someone figures something out. And you know, epiphany, that's not far from the truth. That realization, that, that all of a sudden uh, manifestation of something, seeing behind the curtain, you know. Epiphany is from the Greek word epiphania, and it means appearance or manifestation. It's a discovery. It's a realization about the essential nature or meaning of something. It is seeing behind the curtain. You know, I had a uh, wife-assisted epiphany recently when our youngest, uh, Asher, who is normally really good-natured, was going full Godzilla in the living room with his brother's toys. You know, he was, he was, he was just, just uh, dominating things, stomping on them, destroying them. And here I am, you know, trying to get down and reason with him, talk him through his frustration and pain, maybe kind of lay him down on our couch and do a little psychoanalysis on our two-year-old to get to the heart of the matter. And, you know, my wife walks by, and she's, she gives me the secret formula for dealing with Asher. She says, hungry, teething, tired. That's it. One of the three. And that was an epiphany for me, right? It's like, oh, it's that simple. Now I see. I had my light bulb. Or here's another one. Husbands, it's Valentine's Day, right? So when your wife says she doesn't want you to make a big deal out of Valentine's Day, and you don't plan or or buy anything for her, you have a 50-50 chance of experiencing a major epiphany that evening, don't you? Right? I mean, it's an epiphany. It's a realization. It's learning something. So in our text for this morning, the disciples received their own epiphany from Christ. That's what the transfiguration is. It's a realization. Their own glance behind the curtain. Because in our text for this morning, Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop, and he reveals his essential nature, who he is. And there are tons of implications from this moment, but there's only two points that I want to focus on this morning. The first is, we learn that Jesus is the source of our glory. And the other point is, we learn that Jesus is the source of our strength. So I want to dive into the text and let's explain what this means. Point one, Jesus is the source of glory. Now if you have your bulletin in front of you, it's, it's, it's a short text, but what I'm going to do is I want to give it to you broad strokes, all right? Broad strokes, here's what's going on. Jesus takes three disciples up the mountain. He is transfigured before them, becoming radiantly white. God then appears in a a veiled, overshadowing cloud and speaks. And then they descend the mountain into a chaotic situation, right? There's four things kind of going on here. And it's kind of fascinating, right? This is the only time that Jesus is really transfigured in the fullness of his glory before the disciples in the New Testament. It's like this is a unique moment. But not really. You see, there's there's a parallel text in the Old Testament that helps us flesh out what's going on. Because you know what? When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, there are four things going on as well. 
Moses took three named companions with him up to Mount Sinai. Moses takes on a radiant glow after his encounter with God. God appears in a veiled and overshadowing cloud and speaks from the cloud, and they descend the mountaintop into a chaotic situation. You see the parallels here of what's going on? Now, the reason that I bring this up to you, why this is important, is because when you hold these images side by side, the really profound things in the text are the differences between those two images. And here's what I mean. You ever go to a restaurant and you see the kids' menu and they have the spot the differences game? You ever see that? You know, hold up two pictures side by side, right? And they're almost identical. But the point of the game, the point of this little activity is to circle what's different about the two of the images, right? And that's where you see what's important. That's what you focus on. And, and, the, and so when we look at these texts, the best way to see them is when we focus on the differences, the stark contrast between the two images of Moses and Jesus going up the mountain. So the first stark difference is the transfiguration itself. The first stark difference between the two is the transfiguration itself. You see, when Moses went up on the mountain, he became radiant and he shone, but the radiance of Moses was just a reflection of the glory of God. It wasn't his. It was the reflection of the glory of God. But Jesus, when he went up on the mountain, he shone. He was glorious. The glory came from within, and it's the difference, and to put it in simple terms, it's the difference between the sun and the moon, right? The moon reflecting the light of the sun versus the sun being the source of that light. And Jesus Christ is the source of glory in his transformation. The Greek word here for transfiguration is metamorpho. And we get the word metamorphosis, right? You're familiar with that. And it's not just that Jesus became bright and shiny. It's that he was completely changed. Right? Again, think caterpillar to butterfly. There's a complete transformation here. And it just doesn't indicate that he, he just kind of glowed, but something fundamental about his nature was revealed. We learn in this text that Jesus is not merely a teacher, he's not merely a prophet, he's not merely a healer, but Jesus is God himself. And as God, he is the source of the glory and of the strength and of the righteousness and our very purpose in life. The glory emanates from whom? From him. This is profoundly significant because you and I are not gods, despite what culture might tell you. We're not gods. We're not designated, we're not designed to generate our own glory. We are designed to receive and reflect the glory of Christ. Here's what I mean. There's this cultural nonsense that's been around since at least the 60s, that we are above all to be true to ourselves. You ever hear this notion? You're to be true to yourself, self-actualized, that the goal of your life is to live the most authentic life possible to be your best and most glorious self. Oprah would call it speaking your truth, right? Or living your truth. Shakespeare had another term for it. To quote Polonius from Shakespeare's Hamlet, to thine own self be true. Well, what most people don't seem to realize when they put that on their bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets is Shakespeare wrote Polonius as the fool right? Hamlet even called Polonius. He calls him that tedious old fool. That's not a, that's not a declaration of, of, of wisdom there, to thine own self be true. Because that notion that the aim of life is to be true to yourself is foolish, 
because you're not the ideal. Jesus is. He is the plumb line. He is the exemplar, not us. And our goal in life is not to become more of ourselves, but to become more like Him. You know, imagine for a second that who you are now in this moment is as good as you're ever going to get. And it's as good as you would ever even desire to get. And then imagine that because you think you're as good as as is possible, that you start calling attention to yourself as one who is glorious and achieved the pinnacle of what it means to be human. That you have become the ideal to which all people should strive, right? Look at me. I've made it. I've done it. I am the best possible person. Seems kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Narcissistic even. Well, why is that? Because it is. It is. Because there is only one who is glorious, only one who is the pinnacle, only one who is the exemplar, and anything about us that glorious is just derivative. Y'all follow me when I'm saying that? You see, the church fathers would explain this concept of us being receptors or receivers of glory by using the image of metal and fire, right? In a blacksmith's crucible, what, what do you do with metal? You heat the metal, right, in order to, to manipulate it and to shape it and to mold it. And as the metal is in the fire, it starts to take on the qualities of the fire, doesn't it? It takes on properties of light. It takes on properties of heat. It takes on the properties of the fire and is moldable as long as it is in the fire, but as soon as you take it out and it cools, it returns back to its dull, unmalleable self. You see, the nearer we are to Jesus, the closer we walk into His presence, through listening to Him and His Word and reading Scripture, through experiencing Him in prayer, and through living out our faith, the more we reflect that glory. And and this is all over Scripture, you know. Paul writes, how do people get transformed? How do we change? This is what Paul says. And we, with unveiled faces, that means we're experiencing the fullness of God, and we are beholding His glory, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to the next. How do you change? How do you experience that transformation? Draw near to Christ in His presence, in His glory. Jesus says in Matthew 5, He says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify you. No. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because that's His glory coming through you. Jesus is the source of glory in our transformation and our exemplar and the line that we not only follow but we draw near to. And this should be a great comfort to you. This should be a great comfort to you. You know, central to the human experience is the notion that somehow we have to justify our own existence, that somehow we have all fallen short and need to strive to make meaning or or purpose for ourselves. We all feel like we start off with this glory deficit, this empty cup, and we have to fill it with something. And, and culture's telling us, well, that's just, you know, if you feel empty, it's because you haven't let your own inner light come out and shine. Well, that's nonsense. You can't manufacture what you don't have. But we do attempt it anyway, don't we? And we attempt it in several ways. Sometimes we attempt, and this especially happens with teenagers, but it can happen with us when we're older, we attempt to make our glory shine by being unique 
and our interests or highlight our innate qualities, what makes us special or different. And we try to, to, to manufacture glory by standing out. Anybody ever been there? You remember, remember your teenage years? Sorry, teenagers, but you're living it. Um, another way we try to manufacture glory is we, try to, we strive to accomplish this great task that we can point to and say, look what I did. Look how capable I am. Does anybody resonate with that? Look at this thing that I have done. So we try to stand above. Stand above others and say, look, I can rise above. I can do these wonderful things. So we either try to stand out or we try to stand above. But what if there was another way? What if there was another option to receive the glory? What if we were built not to manufacture our glory for ourselves, but to reflect the glory of God? What if our central task in life is not to stand out or stand above, but to stand in the presence of God and to find our strength in Him? And so all these other ways that we try to live to do this for ourselves, we're missing the mark. And we know that because our cup never gets filled. You know, my wife and I have an older couple. Uh, their names are Fred and Kathy, who have mentored and walked alongside us for years. I think, Amy, it's been probably 10 years uh, for you and maybe seven years for me. And one of the things about Fred and Kathy is that, you know, they've helped us early on in our marriage. They uh, helped us learn how to kind of come together as two separate people. Uh, they've led us through Bible studies. They've led us uh, overseas to Swaziland for mission work. And what makes them remarkable is not their accomplishments, and they have, they have a few. It's not their resumes. It's, it's the fact that they are completely humbly reliant on the Lord. And every time we go with them to, with a problem or a concern or a question, the reason we can trust them is because we know where they're going to point us. And they'll ask us, did you pray about this? Here, let's look at what the Bible says about what you're talking about. You know what? Let's bring this before the Lord together. That's what it is to find our strength in Christ, to find our glory in Christ, to go back to the source. Which brings us to our second and final point. Jesus is the source of strength. You know, what was the transfiguration for? What does it matter that Christ revealed himself? What are we to do with our experience in the presence of God moving forward? If you zoom out from our passage, there's something curious going on in the book of Mark. Right before the transfiguration, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to be betrayed, to suffer, be rejected, and to die. And then, after the transfiguration, they come back down the mountain and they deal with the chaotic, demonic situation, and the very next teaching of Jesus is, hey guys, I'm going to be crucified and die. First and second teachings of Jesus' death, I'm sorry. I'm stepping on his shoe. Um, first and second teachings of Jesus' death. So what's happening in the middle? Why the transfiguration in the middle of this? Why in the middle of these two teachings of suffering and death and endurance does Jesus reveal his light and glory before them? Well, he does it to sustain them, to give them strength, to give them endurance for what's to come, to give them a glimpse and experience of his presence that they can carry with them into what's about to follow. Uh, there's this brutal and controversial novel written in 1965 called The Painted Bird, written by Kaczynski. Is anybody familiar with that one? It's brutal. I'm not recommending it to you. Um, I'm just explaining it to you because it's, it's a hard book to read. Because it's about this young boy 
who's in, in the backwoods Poland in World War II, and he's fighting for survival. He's fighting for survival against the elements. He's fighting for survival against the superstitious town people and wild animals and brutal children, and he's, he's just trying to make it. And he says in this book that there were two things that he learned about survival that were key. He said, you know, you have to know plants and animals about what to eat. But he said the second thing necessary for survival was what he called his comet. His comet. He says, without a comet, you're as good as, 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 you're as, good as dead. And what a comet was, all it was was a uh, one-quart can of preservatives, right? And it was hollowed out and emptied. And you poked holes into the sides of it. And you tied a wire around it. And on the off chance that you could find a match in one town because they were incredibly scarce, you would light the inside of this comet. And your whole goal, your whole mission was to keep that fire lit. In dry seasons, you wouldn't swing it around so much because you didn't want it to burn out. But in wet seasons, you put the driest material you could find and you swung that thing, kind of like you see our thurible, right? You swung that thing to keep it lit. At night, you'd put damp moss in it to drive away the mosquitoes and the snakes and to make sure it burned throughout the night and never went out. If you went into a town and either the children or the dogs would come and attack you, what you would do is you would swing that comet around and it would, the embers would, would burn and you'd be able to keep everything away from you. It was used to cook your food. It was used to provide you with warmth, this little comet. You know, Jesus' revelation of himself was a gift to disciples because it gave them something to carry within themselves through the difficult times to come, an ember that would continue to burn, to provide them with a source of strength and fortitude. Because, you know, the very next time that Jesus would call these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to himself, to go alone with him, was to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. And these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, would see Jesus transfigured in glory, but they'd also see him desperate and anguished and praying to the Father. You know, if, if you could get this cup to pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. And this was the night before they would scatter, terrified that what happened to Jesus on the cross would happen to them as well. And so when Jesus reveals himself as Lord and they hear the voice of God, that Jesus is his beloved son, it provides them with the strength to face what's coming. You know, the gift of the transfiguration to the disciples was both the knowledge that Jesus, who is the Lord on the mountain and transfigured before him, is also Lord when he's suffering death on the cross. Lord and Lord. Lord in the good and Lord in the bad. Lord in times of strength and Lord in times of suffering. And they'd also learn that Jesus was just as beloved by God in the baptism of his ministry as he was on the mountain when he was about to be crucified, that the love of God carried into Jesus through every circumstance. And that's a lesson for us to learn as well when we talk about standing in the presence of God and being transformed and holding on to that light. You know, it's easy for us to believe that Jesus is Lord when things are going well, and it's easy for us to believe that Jesus is Lord when things are, when things are uh, it's easy to believe that God loves us when things are going well, right? 
So you believe that Jesus is Lord, it's easy to believe that God loves us when things are going well. But when that switches, when that turns, what are the first things that we doubt? We doubt that God is in control, and we doubt that he cares about us. Is that your experience too, or is it just mine? And so like the disciples, we all need this strength that we derive from Jesus himself. From those moments that we have encountered him, our own epiphanies of his, of his presence and experience to sustain us. You know, we're about to enter Lent, right? Ash Wednesday is this upcoming Wednesday. And so we're kind of at the high point, the minor elevation, right before we get to the low. And so Lent is a time of contemplation and preparation. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to slow down, to be introspective, and to seek the Lord. So I would encourage you, if this idea of encountering Jesus and in being sustained by that encounter is foreign to you, or it's been a long time, enter into the season of Lent with the posture of seeking His presence. And if that, if that seems, you know, if you're in such a rough spot right now, and you're in such a difficult season, that, that doing more or adding more on seems, seems almost impossible to you, I would encourage you, don't neglect the embers that God has provided you, but continue to fan that flame by becoming into, coming into His presence. You know, remembrances of time in His presence and moments that He has drawn near to you will sustain us. I'm going to close with this. My favorite psalm is Psalm 13, and it's only six verses. And the reason that it's my favorite psalm is because in the first, for, the first four verses, the psalmist is saying, you know, Lord, where are you? Everything's falling apart. Everyone's coming after me. I can't maintain. I can't see your face. I can't seek it. But then he switches the tone in the last two verses, and that's what the psalmist says. But I will continue to praise you. I will continue to sing to you because the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. What's the psalmist doing? Pointing back to those points where Jesus manifested himself to him. I would encourage us to do the same. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stir up our hearts to continue to come into your presence and to seek your face. That we would not be seeking techniques for better living, nor would we be seeking distractions to keep us from facing the fullness of the reality that you have put us in. But God, I pray that you would so direct and dispose our minds to enter into your presence that you would also create the way. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.